You are now listening to the JFDI Podcast. Right, we're back. JFDI, Graham Brown in the studio with Hugh. Hello. Hey, Hugh. How's it going? Very good. And I'm really pleased to be here because we have, as it happens, a run of three female entrepreneurs coming up yeah. um, over the next three editions, which um, I'm just excited about. We, we talked last time about two, two white dudes, yeah. you know, middle-aged. Apologists. And we have these fantastically successful people who are going to share their stories with us. Some badass female entrepreneurs. Yeah. Inspiration. Shall I introduce Yeah, without further ado. Yeah. So sitting opposite me is, I don't know whether I should bow here, but basically it's, it's Margaret Manning OBE. So did you actually get bonked on the head by the Queen with like a sword? Was it like, how <laughs> no, did that, that happen? That's a knighthood, apparently. Ah, okay. Um, but, but when you get an OBE, you don't know who's going to give it to you. Right. Oh. You actually don't know until you turn up. This is the Order of the British Empire, which sounds quite... Officer. Oh, officer. officer. Officer of the Order of the British Empire. I'm a lot more knowledgeable about these things now yeah. than I was a couple of years ago. Do you get a medal? Like, you get a little thing to, to, to hang on your dress, but you're actually not allowed to wear it except on ceremonial occasions. So I was going to explain, for, for, for viewers at home who can't see, because yeah. <laughs> it's a podcast, Margaret has actually got a thing, like a kind of dustbin lid around her neck. <laughs> that actually is this giant, that thing that you didn't notice, that actually is her <laughs> Order of the British Empire. And it's, if there's a clanking sort of noise during the <laughs> podcast... That will be the gong, kind of gonging. Well, I've, I've also found out that there are two advantages of, of this. You can actually, uh, your children and your grandchildren can get married in St. Paul's Cathedral. Oh, awesome, wow. okay. And um, their children may be baptised uh, at wow. St. Paul's Cathedral in wow. London. With benefits. With yeah, benefits, real. definitely. Fantastic. Do you use that to get, like... Upgrade. preferred yeah <laughs> restaurant bookings and stuff do you know who i am I, I i think the only way you're going to do that is 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 get a get a knighthood and get the uh, sir in front uh, of your okay. name or madam or dame dame would it be dame, dame? it would be dame it definitely would and be is dame. it like an upgrade thing is it like playing a video game where like to get to the next yes, level definitely <laughs> Yes, I'm, so, I'm, I am actually a games fanatic, right, so right. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm just wishing that you could do in-app purchases. It would be quicker. Wow. And I guess we should say why Margaret is so. She, you yeah. were Entrepreneur of the Year. That's why this happened, isn't it? Or um, The uh, the OBE was actually, uh, was actually um, awarded for services for export ah. for British uh, businesses to ASEAN. Singapore in particular. Yeah. Right. So I do a lot of work with British businesses, helping them export to, to ASEAN. Which, funnily enough, was the kind of thing we wanted to talk about. Yeah. Um, you know, on this podcast, I think rather than talking about businesses, we like to talk about people's personal stories. Mm. And that's doing export, working outside your home country is a quite an adventure for any entrepreneur, isn't it? And so I want to take you back to our first conversation. You and I met <coughs> at uh, the newly opened Te Papa Museum in Wellington in about 2002. And um, you told me a story over a coffee, which I've always remembered, which is the day you nearly closed down your business. This is a dot-com 1.0 business. Tell us about that. Um, my husband and I set the business up. In fact, he actually founded the business. Um, I had to marry into it. Uh, but having married into it, I... I I moved you, very, very fast into a position the, of control. You got the OBE and he didn't. I don't. Please oh, mention yeah. Yeah. that. How long have we got for that? <laughs> <laughs> the, don't go there. Um, so the business was set up in 1996. Uh, it was a digital business in the days that everyone told us that the internet was going to go away. And it was the question that everyone asked, when's the internet going to go away? What's the point of doing this? Um, so we, we, we actually got the biggest mortgage we possibly could mm -hmm. 
on my uh, salary as a finance director. Mm. Um, day the mortgage came through, I quit my job. Mm-hmm. And uh, we then spent all our savings on a weekend in New York <laughs> and started on Monday morning. So we didn't start with a was lot of... Was that because that was going to be like the last holiday you knew you were going to have uh, in like uh, years? Well, there, there wasn't enough savings to, to protect the business anyway. So if it, if it failed, it wasn't going to help us very much. <laughs> and if it succeeded, we weren't going to need it. So this is why, guys listening, this is why you need a finance person in your business to tell yeah. you to go on holiday. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes, I didn't actually say I'm, <laughs> I'm actually a recovering accountant. So oh. I, I was very carefully counting the pennies um, while spending them in New York. So uh, we started the business with n- not a lot of backing. Um, and that was a, a web design business? It what was. was it in, the, in those days, it was definitely, we are going to design your websites. That was it. Uh, don't forget, this was very, very mm. soon before this. There were actually only 44 websites in the world. <laughs> Uh, th- this was those kind of days, so it was wow. very, very early pioneering. So quitting your job was actually quite a big leap. It was a massive leap into yeah. the dark, and a very good friend of mine who's a finance director of a PLC, <coughs> very smart guy, came and did a study for me. Um, he graciously gave us a, a week of time where he studied the market, he did all his research, he looked at our books, and he said, look, I'm really, really sorry, but I can absolutely assure you that this you business this. can never grow b- b- beyond nine people, and frankly, you're going to go bust within the year. <laughs> we offered him 15% of our business. He refused it. Wow. Who's laughing now? <laughs> yes, exactly. So how, how, much were you char- sorry, mm. how much were you charging for a website design back then? Oh, goodness. Well, that's actually <laughs> that's another, a whole other story, because... Um, I did a little bit of research myself and I sent out a, uh, a, a, a spec to a whole bunch of different agencies. There were about 10 at the time. Mm. So I sent out a spec and I, I got quotes back from £200, this was in London, mm. to £200,000 on the same spec, depending on the company that you sent it to. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it was very, very difficult to value a website. So one thing we did is we created packages. So we had a launch pad, uh, a K site and a power site. And each of those had a price point because businesses just didn't know how much a website should cost. And in actual fact, we got a lot of pushback from the big businesses that it wasn't costing enough. Yeah. So it was it was a very difficult balance to 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 kind of get get correct. Um, But. Back to Hughes' uh, comment about um, virtually stopping. We had a very large contract given to us by an accounting body, and we hired a couple of people off the back of it. Um, first two employees. It was act- yes, it actually was the first two employees. And we <coughs> then lost that business the day before oh. it was supposed to start. Oh, and I remember goodness. sitting in the car with my husband, and we were kind of sitting there holding hands, saying, we're going to have to close this business down. Um, the dude who didn't take the 15% was right. Yeah, at that point, he definitely was. Uh, two days later, we won a, a massive piece of work for Glaxo Welcome, <laughs> and the business was secured. So, wow. How much was that worth, can I ask, Glaxo? How, it, was it 200 or 200,000? Which, which end of that was, range? It was very much at the top end of, yeah. of, of that range. We became the global digital company looking after Glaxo Welcome. Hmm. At that time, there were nine of us. Hmm. So it was... It, it was it was very very interesting. The dot com um, one point zero days mm. were in, they were just look they were madly exciting mm-hmm. to be part of that industry in 
London, we were in Soho. It was so exciting. And I think there's something interesting here, isn't there? When you look at all of the studies into what makes startups and entrepreneurs successful, timing is one of those things. And my experience over the last 30 years is like every few years, there'll be something <clears throat> that's a new big paradigm shift, <clears throat> excuse me, like the internet or crypt, you know, blockchain, Crypto. something like okay. that that yeah. comes along. And then it opens, it cracks open this thing and a load of people, it's always the same cycle. People say, oh, it's never, the, it's just a fad, blah, 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 blah. If you happen to be the right people in the right place at the right time, I and mean, this is no disrespect to anything, but timing plays an enormous part in success, doesn't it? It's, it's luck. That bit is, is right. luck, definitely. But you, you, you make your own luck. Right. You see right. it. Right. Right, right, right. So, yes, absolutely. Um, there, there is a timing element of it. But the timing element of it, you have to take it. You have to grab it at that, that point in time. And that's, I think, everybody's there at that same point in time. It's those people that grab it and make that opportunity work for them. Yeah. Um, the dot-com bust actually is a very, very good um, case in point because if the, the dot-com boom was luck, the dot-com bust, um, you had to, had to ride. When we were a small business um, of, I think, about 16 people when the dot-com bust happened, you could see it coming. It was quite clear that it was coming. Uh, we'd actually, for the first time in my entire existence, saved up some money hmm. um, to to help us ride that bus. I thought you were going to say saved up some money to go on another holiday <laughs> in New York. <laughs> very, very, very tempting. But we grew from being the something around the 100th largest um, design, it's not just digital, design agency in the UK at the beginning of the bust to something uh, uh, in the region of eighth or ninth largest wow. business in the UK, design business in the UK, at the end of the bust. Wow. What was the name of the company, Margaret? It was called Reading, Reading Room. Reading Room. Yeah. Mm. So Reading Room at that time was a, a UK business. In 2001, we then set up um, a business in Australia. Mm. And then 2011, we set up a business in Singapore. And I think, again, talking about luck, Singapore seemed... Maybe it was just a lucky break, but um, having looked at the marketplace, Singapore was so outward looking, creative, wanted to open up the digital experience within Singapore, digital technology. Mm. It was a, it was a no brainer. And just going back to 2001, that kind of period. So the, the dot com crash has just happened, but you guys have survived. When, by the time we'd met in 2002, I don't know whether the worst of it was over, but you were certainly looking to expand. You'd got the Operation Australia, and I was really honoured because you asked me to mentor you, and I thought, my goodness, what can I teach this <laughs> this woman? And I thought, well, I'm not going to teach her anything at all. It's not about that. It's actually about having a conversation and sharing insights and reflecting back. And I remember the stuff that we were talking about then was about scaling your business. You'd got this, you know, you talked about having 16 people in the company. I remember us having conversations about how when you have a sort of 15 or 16 people working in a group, everyone knows each other, it all works. By the time you get to 25, it doesn't work anymore, does it? There's a, you have to have a different s structure. And that's especially the case if you've got operations in different countries. How did that all work out? This goes back to the uh, recovering accountant bit. I did some work with Pricewaterhouse about something called value-added reporting because finance actually is historic in general. Um, Finance, frankly, should be the next industry that's completely disrupted. Uh, Your next startup. Yes, mm. maybe. Um, 
because finance is is historic looking whereas if you're running a business if you're an entrepreneur you don't care about the history you really care about about the future you don't know where, why you went bust down to the last end <laughs> no, you want to really. try and avoid that don't you yes you want to look for exactly exactly mm. and that's why uh, for our, our business we were we set it up as a business that was adaptive to change the whole structure of the business was created to make change easy because we've been through so many upheavals and disruptions over the last 22 years and only by being adaptive to change and frankly throwing away the rule books and mm. doing things that could appear on the surface not uh, not how it should be done that was how we survived and that to me sounds like classic founder-led business i mean you didn't use the word the, the other a word agile but actually, you created an agile structure, we would now say, I think. I, definitely. I, I would call it Enterprise 2.0, agile structure, or um, currently it's also known as beyond budgeting. So just describe that. So we have this kind of um, very flexible business. Let's call it like a jelly. I want, I want to imagine like a tray of kind of slightly wobbly jellies. And the fact that they're slightly wobbly allows them to adapt. You didn't build one big jelly. You built a whole series of little 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 jellies. Well, yeah. they're, they're not so much little jellies. They're, they're, we call them um, uh, digital experience squads now uh, because 16 people is um, the size of a, 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 an army or a navy unit. Right. It's the maximum number mm. of people uh, a chef can run in his kitchen. So we're trying to create structures where you don't need to run it with a spreadsheet or heaven help us with SAP. Um, mm, mm. You're trying to create a structure where you are running it on a whiteboard. Mm. You, you're running it in a very, very um, efficient way. So when Jeff Bezos talks about Amazon always staying, he just says it's like a year one company or something. Yeah. He wants it to mm. stay, doesn't he? Mm. Is that what he's talking about? I think it's very similar. The reason that we actually started to, to, to create those structures was because somebody came to us and said, you, we need a memo. We need you to create a memo a about memo. what, um, yes, about what is going on within the business because we don't know. Mm -hmm. And it was that point we thought, right, we never want to run a business that has to rely on memos. Yeah. So then we created these two businesses. And from that moment onwards, then we started creating more and more of these 16 people units. And it seems that 16 people is, is the maximum after that. Um, Do they call it a it, platoon in the army? Is that right? Or yeah. SEAL unit? Yeah, right. Yeah. There's been a lot of studies done on that. I mean, even up to the the 150, isn't it, for a department that that mm. I think they've looked at Stone Age tribes and they've said 150 was the the maximum or the average number of a, tr a tribe in the Stone Age times. It's the Dunbar number. Dunbar number, yeah. And the, Mr. The, the Roman legions and mm. Apple had it in their development teams. But I think one of the reasons was is that they're saying that. For example, like on mm. Facebook, you can have a certain amount of connections and after that, they then become meaningless. Me. So you have yeah. in your brain the neuro pathways for so many connections. It, on a day-to-day -day basis, if you're sitting across from a table from somebody, you, you can have yeah. maybe 15 like informal ad hoc conversations with and people. So just to test this out, we're skipping ahead in the story because we'll come to it properly. When you finally sold the business, roughly what was the total number of employees? Did it happen to be around 150, he asks, leadingly? Uh, absolutely. Uh, we, we, when we, we actually sold the UK business in um, mm. late 2015. At that point, the UK business had approximately 150 people. Right. There you go. Yep. And you're going to love this one mm. then. When we sold the Singapore and Australian businesses mm. um, in November uh, 18, 
to Ernst Young, then we had approximately 150 people. There you go. Mr. Probably Dr. Dunbar, isn't he? Dunbar has lots of answers. But these type of theories are going to be incredibly important during this next change, uh, disruptive, uh, transformative um, changes that are happening across all sectors. Mm. And when you talk about disruption, or when you talk about digital transformation, most people think, oh, we need to talk to the IT department, or we need to talk to the marketing department. Mm. They are the people that are actually going to be in control of digital yeah. transformation. But it's not. The first people you should be talking to are the finance department, yeah. because they're in charge of the metrics, and metrics drive behavior. So when you're talking about your 150 people, that's process. Right. And yet we don't think process first. Mm. Mm. We think process last. And also when we're doing transformation, especially if we're, if we're, not, if we're just doing incremental, adding a little bit onto what we're doing, then we might know what the metrics are. If we're doing something that is truly transformational, it's quite tricky to know how to measure it, isn't it? And there's that old phrase, I don't know whether it was Peter Drucker, but if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Yeah. And that's deeply embedded in many, many MBAs, isn't it? And if you're measuring the wrong thing, you are driving substantially incorrect behavior. Right. Mm. Facebook likes. Right. <laughs> so you've got this coming. So what, what I've always enjoyed about knowing and talking with Margaret about her business over the last nearly 20 years now, 18, 20 years, is you've got this accountant mentality. You've got that measurement, which I think is absolutely right. But you've also got a great sense for people. And can you tell us about some of what you learned about people? You know, you, as an entrepreneur, you start a business with your husband. It's really exciting. You get this group of 16 people and then suddenly you have to start bringing in more people. And especially once you've got more than one of those, what did you call them? Agile squads. Uh, squads. Yep. Yeah. Digital experience. Squads. DX squads. Then you're going to have people with their own ideas, their own ambitions. You're going to have people whose careers want to grow. You're going to have to have some kind of board structure and stuff. How do you, were you fixing all of that stuff for the very first time? How do I make that work? Ooh, absolutely. We had, <laughs> we, we've never done this before. Um, let's have a go. Um, yes, I remember the first board meetings that we had. Uh, what did we learn? Board meeting wise, what we learned was you need a chairman. Right. You need a chairman from outside of the business. Or it's a chairwoman. Vital. A chair. It's a very, very good object. point. We should, we should, it's a chair object. You yeah. can't be, might not be a person. I'm, be I'm actually um, chair of the UK ASEAN Business Council, and I'm not sure whether on my LinkedIn profile to put chairman, chairwoman, or just chair. Yeah. I think it says chair. I just checked you out. Oh, thank you very <laughs> <There> much. <laughs> we interrupt. So you need a chair. And what's the function of that person? Um, or to object? Keep, to, to, to keep you true, to keep you real. Okay. To make sure that you are actually going to the board meeting, that you're preparing documentation, that you're actually thinking about things in a different way. Otherwise, in a entrepreneurial business, you quite often, oh, well, pff, who cares? So even mm. if you're the founder and the CEO, you need someone to say to you, Margaret, last month you said you were going to do X yes. and you did Y instead. Now, that might be perfectly OK, but at least share with us why you did why and it's also extremely important for the rest of the board to see that this meeting is actually uh, has some importance right um, and you'll find that the the board itself the directors will respond differently to an external chair mm. than they would if it's just the ceo looking after it and it's interesting that we, we started this off by talking about obes and the queen and things yeah one thing though if anyone's seen that Netflix series, The Crown, the reason why it works as a piece of drama is because all the prime ministers have to go and see the Queen every week, right? Like they have this so-called audience with the Queen. And it's private, so it's not like a board meeting. 
but they are reporting to somebody, aren't they? And she doesn't really have control. I mean, technically, I guess she could refuse to sign a bill or something. But I wonder if there's a similar relationship there. It kind of holds them to account, doesn't it? Yes, you're absolutely right. That's a very good way of putting it. You're held to account. And an external chair it very much holds people to account. And what was that like when you were sort of an independent... I mean, did you have arguments with your chair? She's grinning for people at home. You can't see this, but it's an enormous grin. There's a story here. Here it comes. You'd probably have to ask the chairs. <laughs> oh, chairs. Okay. There were, there, were two, there were two of them over, over the years. Both of them were absolutely awesome yeah. um, individuals. Absolutely awesome. But we were a very, very close-knit business. Mm. Uh, so the directors of the business were, were friends as well as as well as work colleagues um well because i say all of them are still still friends i was talking to two of them over the last couple of days um that's an achievement yeah so the 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 one chair made a comment is these board meetings are far too polite (laughs) um not not that we would ever have kind of made up what we were going to say before we went in we'd never think about doing that but we we tended to all have very similar uh, points of view. Okay. Now, you asked one, the, the original question that you asked was, what do you le- did you learn about people? What I did was I was, I was looking at successful um, entrepreneurial style businesses that had taken that leap of growth. And the one that I kind of was modeling the business on to a certain extent was a company called Sitecore, mm-hmm. which started in Denmark. And it was growing across the world very rapidly. But what you could tell very quickly if you were working with them in Australia, in Singapore and the UK is that they had created a group of people that no matter where in the world they were, they had similar values and similar um, viewpoints, which was quite unusual. And I asked them why. How did you do this? How on earth did you grow and scale in as successfully as you, you have done with people of like mind and they introduced me to disc profiling hmm. so disc profiling is a test of behavior not a personality test it's a test of behavior at work not a test of behavior in in all different situations and the disc profiling that we then started was enormously helpful <coughs> to our business in being able to recruit people who would more easily fit into the dynamic that we had, which was fast growing, slightly chaotic, very, very entrepreneurial at all levels within the business and very ambitious. Mm. So people that joined, for example, as an admin assistant could well become uh, a director. And one of them did uh, within a period of two years. So I find this fascinating because whenever I talk to people who've grown businesses as opposed to just started businesses that are kind of plateaued, they always talk about culture, which is what mm. I think you're talking about. Culture is vital. Yeah. Absolutely vital. And what you found as an accountant by training, <laughs> you found a tool. It's a quite rough and ready measure. And I'm not being disrespectful about DISC, but it's not like a, you know, super accurate thing. But you found something that worked, something pragmatic that was a way of measuring the qualities of the people and their actions. And everybody within the business knew everybody else's profile. Right. So they, they were freely shared. And how, how does it actually work? It's not a psychometric test, obviously. No, it's not a psychometric test. It takes 20 minutes to do. Yeah. Probably less. Um, and it just gives you, a, as, as you said, a, a rough and ready uh, concept of, of behavior. Mm. But we found that there were some very easy things to spot uh, for people that actually would enjoy a chaotic 
Mm. Uh, like in, what, it, for example? Because uh, I ask because I'm recruiting now and I'm looking for the right people. Like everybody is, but culture for us is ha, essential. Well, d definitely have a look at disk profiling. Yeah. And what we did to start with, before we started giving it out to everybody else, is we did disk profiling, obviously, on the people we had internally. Mm. We had very, uh, we had mentorship on disk profiling for the board. So we looked at the dynamic because it's not disprofiling. It's not a test of only your behavior. It's a test of the kind of behavior within the business and how well those people will fit. So a person of certain disprofile will work very well with a, a, a certain manager and may not fit with another. And we that, that was actually one of the reasons for squads as well. The squads mm. were allowed to build up their very own clear personalities. So somebody that was joining may well fit into one squad and not into another. Mm. And equally, you could move people around. Um, to your point again, Hugh, how do you manage ambitious mm. people? Because we try to hire very highly ambitious, mm. very highly intelligent people, and then give them the opportunities to grow. I, I was just checking here on Wikipedia for anyone who wants to look up DISC. Um, the, it stands for Dominance, Influence, Steadiness, and Conscientiousness. Those are sort of, I guess, four dimensions of behavior. I don't know if you've found this, but sometimes when I've done any of these kind of personality tests or behaviors, people get very obsessed with well, what does this actually mean? And sometimes I think the test itself is not so important as the fact that it makes a conversation possible. Exactly. I, I again, could not agree with you more. Hmm. It takes comments like your behavior isn't great yeah. or your behavior is fantastic to something slightly more I was going to say scientific. It's not. It's slightly easier to have that conversation with somebody mm. when you have something in front of you to say, how do you feel about this particular measurement? Do you think it does describe your You behavior? were very dominant during that meeting. Was that appropriate yeah. kind of thing? Oh, yes. And it, also, it, we made a very big point that this is not uh, a personality test because I did psychology at university and the concept of labeling people mm -hmm. and psychometric yeah. testing is something that I wholeheartedly disagree with. So a single person, for those who haven't done DISC tests, in some situations you could have high D, you could be, you could be behaving dominantly, in other situations you might not, but just being aware of that. I gave <coughs> the DISC test to my daughter and um, it went from one, it, it went in a kind of upward slash. And I said to her, that doesn't seem very much like the personality um, dear that I know. And she, she said, well, you told me to do it as my behavior at work. So I gave it her again. And I said, right, now do your behavior as you behave at home. Mm. Funnily enough, it went completely, <laughs> the slash went in completely the opposite direction. And when you say slash, you mean it's like D-I-S-C and you're yes. scoring these things from yep. bottom to top, right? Yeah, yeah. so her, her very, very high D at home when she was telling her mum exactly what she wanted her <laughs> to do and at what point in time, uh, actually 15 years later, she does the same thing still. Wow. Wow. Interesting. What about yourself? <laughs> I think I'm going to leave you to guess. Ah, well, I don't want to label anybody. Barbara, <laughs> no, so. it, it, no, it's for anyone out there who exactly. wants an OBE. We want to know what behaviors <laughs> yeah, do we have to... What is the model? Yeah, what's, what's the, the blueprint? <laughs> I think... Of all the D, of all the four, which are you strongest on? Uh, D. D. Hi, D. And are mm. you going down from there? Or are you going, you're going? you not going up from there, obviously. No, no def, def, <laughs> de definitely not. Uh, I'm high D, uh, half I, uh, no S, 
half half sea. Steadiness. Steadiness. Yes, you wouldn't get much steadiness in a highly chaotic, entrepreneurial, fast-growing business. And yet you're, uh, as an accountant by training, you must be conscientious, surely, because... Otherwise, you can't like add up the numbers, right? Um, my, 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 <laughs> Basically. Hu- my, sorry, sorry, my, accountants. My, I know my, it's much my more. Hus- very creative. <laughs> my husband does say that I'm on the lion taming wing. Accountancy, people think of it as numbers and, and yeah. just adding numbers up and mathematics. It's not. It's actually logic, and finance. Mm. If you t- forget accountancy, if you look at finance, finance can be incredibly creative. It, I don't know how people grow businesses if they don't have a, a control of their finance. Yeah. Totally. I had a great conversation with somebody about risk. Um, what is risk? Or what is risk? How can we help your business? And he said, risk isn't about mitigating or it isn't about creating low risk. It's about creating as high a risk as the business can possibly stand. Yeah. Right. And I really like that in terms of finance and how we ran the business because understanding the finance allowed us to invest more money than we would have been able to do. Measured and in risk. the right mm. yes, correct, and in the mm. right places. If 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 fi- finance wasn't something that came to us once a month, it was actually in our heads constantly. Yeah. So that fluidity uh, enabled us to grow the business. And tell us, as you grew the business internationally, you've got this culture and these metrics that work in the UK and Australia. How did the DISC thing and that stuff work internationally? What what did you notice about different cultures as you expanded? Um, I think there are two different questions there. How do you expand a business and keep the culture is actually really very, very vital. Should you? Should you keep the culture? Um, if you're growing a business... The culture of the people within it, yes, I believe you should keep. Because that's the DNA. Of, that is yeah, absolutely hey, the right. DNA. Now, it doesn't mean to say that you're not adaptive to the culture of the environment in which you land yourself. That's two different things. Hmm. But the culture of the way of, of working internally, we had a very, very strong set of uh, brand values, which was brutally honest, um, exceptional uh, loyal family and isn't it interesting like a lot of people you say to them if i was going to scale a business i've got to be really clear about the business model you know a lot of people would say my business is defined by the business model maybe when you're a startup searching for a business model that Mm. does seem the preoccupation and kind of culture just grows out of the three people that you happen to be able to bring together but as you grow what you're saying is it wasn't really about sticking to a formula you know this is the way we do things and so this is what it says in the menu what worked for you was having a clear set of values. So every time you made a decision, every time you met a client, every time you rejected a job, you knew you were doing it for, for consistent the, reasons. Yes, for the right reasons. There was no point in going to a client and pretending to be Accenture when we weren't. Right. We had our own brand values. We had the way that we behaved, which is very much as a partnership, as an intelligent partnership with our clients. And the clients either liked that or they didn't. Right. And there was no point in pretending that you were something that you weren't because you wouldn't have been able to keep that, that, that pretense up. But depending on, obviously, Australia, the UK, Singapore, Thailand, and the other uh, places that we worked have very different cultural values mm-hmm. in those countries. But those brand values uh, can adapt to, to different cultures. Right. And you're right about the not growing around a specific business model in a very fast changing environment, locking down the model 
will stop you growing. Mm. And I've seen so many businesses, similar businesses to ours, going out of business because they refused to adapt. Right. They if, took the normal route, and I think quite pedestrian thinking, we will specialize in this. Yeah. Mm. Because if you specialize in this, obviously we're going to make a lot of money. Well, maybe they did. But when that thing was no longer needed, they went bust. Yeah. We see that, don't we, in, in Asia here. With, there's that real sort of playoff between those mission-focused companies who are the specialists and the market-focused companies. Very much like the, the Chinese, these platforms who will make anything as long as it's what our customer wants. Mm. So these companies that start as Groupon clones and then doing delivery businesses because they can adapt. Mm. Their belief is, we'll just build a relationship with the customer, have these values, and then if that's what we want, if that's what they want, we can supply it. That's their, their shtick, if you like, rather than we're just going to do this. It's very much like a Silicon Valley-style mm. company. If you look at, for example, like Facebook and how they've developed Messenger, they've got WhatsApp. The development of WhatsApp over the last 10 years, is it's just going to be a messenger service. Yet if you go to China and see WeChat, started as a messenger service, now it does everything, <laughs> right? You know, it's not a specialist. So there's that sort of mindset difference, isn't it? If you want, really want to scale, it sounds like you just have your values and what you're saying is you get the right people, the right people will work it out rather than having a, a very specific business model. It's, it's a very difficult business model to run. And the reason it's a very difficult business model to run is it's because it's not accepted norm. And you have to therefore keep pushing back to your teams that change is not a bad thing because people are actually quite nervous of change. How do you communicate that? Because that's tough, isn't it? That is tough. I, I, I have no easy answer for that. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it is actually hiring and recruiting the right people, but it's equally that, that constant leadership that change is not a bad thing because people will fall back into what is traditional thinking very, very quickly. A great example of that is the concept of creative director, which has been something that has frustrated me over the years. A creative director in our industry should have at least 50, maybe 75% technology background because we're creative technologists in the end. Mm. But people always believe that a creative director is a designer. Mm. That's how they'll be thinking. I'm sorry, but a creative director in the car industry... If you're a creative director for Ferrari, you are not going to be a graphic designer. It's no. not going to happen. And yet the traditional thinking is what people will, will go back to. And you have to keep on pushing it. So when there are expectations, you go back to this idea of expanding internationally, you have a set of values. Uh, you come into an environment that has, say, a different perception of design like Asia, where the, you know, traditionally design is being thought of as being prettifying things, not about structuring businesses, for example, which I think people would now say design is interpreted in a much broader sense. You have to adapt your culture of your company to not just a different workforce, but also to different client expectations. Because if you, if it says creative director on someone's name card, they expect someone Correct. to come in flouncing into the room and kind of, you know, throwing a hissy fit or something, being very creative. You have to choose the environment that you're going to work in quite carefully. Hmm. If, for example, Singapore... Singapore, where we actually moved our business to in 2011, the reason we came here was because in that point, the MDA was very, very open and the Singapore government was 
very much wanting to create a service-led, creative, innovative wave of new small businesses. And it was that impetus from the MDA and then um, IDA, which is now GovTech and IMDA for those of you listening, um, it was that impetus which allowed us the breeding ground to grow our business. Hmm. Now, if you go to a, a, a country that just hasn't got that breeding ground, uh, there would have been a much, much higher barrier to entry for a business like ours. So the culture, there was a cultural fit for you? There was a very strong cultural fit. And then we created a cultural melting pot of very much um, an ASEAN, we're very much an ASEAN business here, uh, but some of those um, ASEAN members came, for example, studied in Australia. Some of them studied in the UK. They're Singaporean returners, as well as Singaporean uh, locals, um, ASEAN locals, and people working and being seconded from the rest of our business into Singapore in the early days. Mm. So we seconded people in and out. We seconded Singaporeans to Australia, to the UK. In fact, very happy to say one of our first secondees out, a, a couple seconded out to Canberra in Australia, have just had their first baby. Fantastic. Oh, no. Two days ago. So that's, a, that's another kind of Adelphi reading room baby. Yeah. I was going to say. Congratulations, guys. Yeah, well done. Which is kind of, I mean, as we move towards sort of the end of the conversation, I think there's uh, there's something really interesting there. You, you built something that was more than just a company, than a spreadsheet. You built a community of people with a culture. And that involves babies even right i mean it really does actually <laughs> and and then and we probably shouldn't we haven't got time to go into the details of what it was like to go through an exit but you've recently sold both bits of your business the uk mm. bit and the bits that are over here in the in, in, in australia and uh, and asia when you try and sell something that's got such a distinctive culture into a giant machine like ey how do you make sure that the value and the culture survives what can you do to kind of try and preserve that and i maybe that's a conversation to go into depth and on another con on another time but i i'm wondering where do you take all that knowledge and insight that you've gained now margaret what what's what's I'm, next i'm going to go back actually to the the the, the reading room adelphi papers actually mm. uh, because it's a question i get asked a lot do you mind letting go yeah um and the theory is that entrepreneurs can't let go now if you've got an entrepreneur that can't let go of their business they will never grow a business it's it, being an entrepreneur means you're constantly letting go. You're constantly handing over things. You have to, otherwise you cannot grow your business. So um, letting go never has been particularly um, a thing in, in, my, in my head. And maybe one of the reasons, maybe you've touched on one of the reasons, we are and were a, a family business. We have grown numerous uh, other businesses and those businesses i'm incredibly proud of uh, having a part a small part to play in the growth of the people that have gone on to build their own businesses so they've spun out they've spun out yes yeah. i would su suggest that there are probably upwards of 30 wow. businesses that have spun out of our business because we hired people who were entrepreneurial we tried to keep them for as long as as we could and then we supported them when they wanted to to to, to leave and run their own businesses. So I'm extremely proud of 
one particular uh, business, which is called Just After Midnight, name check, guys, um, which has uh, now a UK, Singapore and Australian presence, all three of which um, parts of the organisation are run by ex-reading room Adelphi employees. Is it a bit like being a parent? <laughs> I mean, since that you, you know, one of the things you notice when you have a kid is that within two or three weeks, they're manipulating your emotions. I think mean, you're very clear they're their own person. And you realize after a while, you can be a facilitator to this little thing, but you can't, you have to, if you love it, you set it free. Is it like that? I, I guess actually you're probably right. It, it pro probably is a little bit, a little bit like that. I think yeah. that's a, slightly too emotive, okay. but uh, but a little bit like that. You're just incredibly proud of them. But it's it's also it's also a, a business. It's a commercially sound business decision mm. if you are going to hire entrepreneurial people. Mm. If you're going to hire that sort of character, you've got to give them freedom. You you yep. you are you are going to at some point let them go. Right, but they'll add that value for a while. Margaret, you've added huge value to our yeah. podcast in the last hour we've been talking. Thank Agreed. you so much. Great. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. And I feel like I've learned something. I like the bit at the end as well, which I'll, I'm thinking on, which is I'm meditating on that bit about if you can't let go of a business, you can't grow it. Mm. Then that, I think, is a good lesson for all entrepreneurs, right, to think on. Yeah. Because it's a good heuristic to think on, isn't it, okay. about growing your business. And talking about letting go, for anyone listening, please don't let go of us as a podcast. Uh, we have three in a row fantastically successful female entrepreneurs coming up. Yeah. Join us for the next show. Margaret, Graham, thank you both. Thank you very thank much you. both. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the JFDI podcast. Hope you have enjoyed this episode.